So our scripture reading this afternoon will be found in Matthew chapter 7, which is the end of the Great Commission. So prior to this, we have the two ways, and then the two gates, and the two trees, and the two types of builders. And today, we kind of read through two different types of people. So Matthew 7, beginning at verse 15. A tree and its fruit. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many things, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless this reading unto our hearts. So the sermon that I will be preaching this afternoon is a sermon from Reverend Dykstra, and it's entitled, We Find Comfort in Being Known by the Lord. Have you ever heard someone say, it's not what you know, it's who you know? That's one of our culture's proverbial statements that reflect a great deal of truth. During our lives, no matter how smart we might think we are, And no matter how much we think we can do on our own, in the end, we all need help from someone. And in such moments, we are greatly benefited when that someone is in the right position or of the right temperament or with the right gifts and talents to navigate the pathways. It's not just that we need others. We need others well-suited to help us in our time of need. And that's a truth we ought to remember and reflect upon. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that is what we mean when we say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think we use this proverb to describe how we took a shortcut, or how we cheated the system, or how we got away with something. It's how we got that deal on a new car. We knew the salesman or the owner of the car lot. It's how we got out of trouble with an employer because the manager is a friend of ours. It's how we got that request before town council to pass. We know the mayor. Whatever the case, we use this phrase to indicate that we got ahead not by working harder or by doing more, but by knowing the right person. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Have I explained it well? It's important because I think that's how many people relate to Jesus as well. Jesus, the Savior of his people, sits enthroned in heaven at God's right hand. And so, as our Bible teaches us, we have an advocate in God's presence. We have a man on the inside, in a place that we cannot access on our own, and in a place of profound and constant importance. If the sovereign God of life, the God who counts the hairs on your head, who keeps your heart beating, who governs the tides and the sun, moon and stars, if this God looks at you with joy, your life is presently and eternally blessed. No matter how dark the clouds of life may become, behind them shines the bright light of his face, his love, and his care. But if this God who can control all things, who not only controls the wind and the waves, but controls kings and their armies, as well as bacteria and viruses, if this God is angry with you, it doesn't matter how sunny your day is, how good your year has been, or what experiences you are looking forward to in this life. If he's angry with you, your life is lived under the cloud of his judgment. How God looks at us, how he deals with us, is the matter of greatest importance in our lives. And that being the case, how encouraging to know that we've got a man on the inside. How encouraging to know we know someone in the highest place of power. Then it's truly not what you know, but who you know, isn't it? It doesn't matter how good, smart, or able you think you are. Only Jesus can save you. And you'd better know him. Isn't that the gospel message? Well, in a way it is. But that's not quite enough either. Let's go back to our typical use of our proverb. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And let's imagine that you're in a tough spot, whether it's at work, school, or just in society generally. You've got yourself into a pickle. And it doesn't look like you're going to be able to get out of it. But then a friend says, I know someone who can get you out of your situation. I know the person. I know just the person. He's high up in the corporation, or he gets along with the teacher, or he's got the ear of the prime minister. And even being told that already begins to lower your blood pressure and ease your stress. Everything seemed hopeless, but now your friend shines a ray of light into your darkness. He knows a guy, and that guy can get you out of your fix. And with relief, you ask your friend, what's this guy's number? Let me call him and get him on my side immediately. Now imagine your friend says, oh, I don't actually know him all that well. I just know that he could solve your problem. Whatever relief you may have had is suddenly gone as quickly as it came. It's not enough to know who can help you. You need to be in a relationship with them, the one that allows you to ask for such favors. Basically, it's not enough to know someone. They need to know you, too.
And with that in mind, we consider our text this afternoon. The words of our text are some of the most difficult and demanding verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe in Matthew's Gospel, and maybe even in the whole Bible. They are words of sharp, painful warning. And they are words with sharp, sharp teeth. And they are the words that are directed to each one of us as members of God's people. To the people who call Christ Lord. The scene presented is that of Judgment Day. Christ has returned, and the living and the dead have been raised, and our Lord is sitting upon the throne of heaven and earth to judge the living and the dead. In this scene, our attention is drawn to one group of people. Maybe if we let our minds roam a bit, we see these people pushing their way to the front of the line, elbowing their way through the crowd to get to Jesus. They're the kind of people that demand attention, that demand to be recognized. As they get to the front of the line, we hear them crying out, Lord, Lord. And that's, and it's there that we need to start if we're going to understand to whom this text is intended. If we read through the book of Matthew, we will notice that for Matthew, the title Lord is an important one. It's the right one, if we understand who Jesus is. It's the way the centurion in Matthew 8, the one who acknowledged so profoundly, so powerfully, the authority of Jesus. And it's the way the Canaanite woman, whose daughter was demon-possessed, spoke to Jesus as she humbled herself before him. For Matthew, this is the right way to speak of Jesus. And understandably so. From an Old Testament perspective, and remember that Matthew was steeped in his Old Testament scriptures, the word Lord is exactly the right word to describe the coming Messiah. It's a word rich with meaning and truth, and it fits Jesus perfectly. And for this reason, even to this day, it's the word the church gladly and willingly uses in relation to Jesus. He is our Lord. And that being the case, the persons of our text, the ones who stand now before the judge of heaven and earth, must be members of God's covenant community. They must be church members. They know how to speak to Jesus. They know who he is. They use the right word when calling out to him. Surely then, these are Christians. These are members of the church. Or to put it rather pointedly, these are people like you and me. Now as soon as we say that, the press and pain of this text begins to close in on us. You see, even though these people call out to Jesus in the right way, Jesus does not allow them to enter the kingdom of heaven. And there is no more terrifying, no more dreadful thing to hear than that. Please appreciate that. For whatever joys or sorrows we have experienced in this life, nothing will matter if we are excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Nothing we have or experience can begin to match the importance of that day and of the Lord's word to us in that moment. 
None of our rebellion will be a comfort to us then as we suffer the eternal wrath and condemnation of our just judge, which is precisely why we might be tempted to avoid the press of this text. We don't want this text to be about us. We want it to be about lots of others, but not us. And so we try to find an escape route. How can we avoid letting the sharp teeth of this text from biting us? Well, maybe we should think of the title, Lord, in a broader way. Maybe we should understand it in a Philippians 2 verse 11 way. There Paul says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That too is a reference to the end times, and we know what Paul means there. Some people will call Christ Lord willingly, and some will call him Lord unwillingly. But all will call him Lord. So maybe the people in our text aren't church members, at least not real church members. They're the spiritually cold and lazy in the church who don't really care about serving the Lord. In any case, we hope these aren't people like us at all. Unfortunately, that doesn't really fit within our text. Not only do these people know how to speak with Jesus, they've done some pretty impressive things in the faith. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Pretty impressive, right? Whether prophesying is foretelling future events or simply preaching and teaching the gospel, these are some accomplished men. They have very impressive credentials. How can they be the ones excluded from God's presence? That can't be right, can it? There must be something wrong. After all, if these guys are as accomplished as, they, as these are rejected from heaven, what hope have we? And so we try to wiggle our way out of the press of this text. We tell ourselves that these men are lying. They're making it all up. Or more likely, their so-called miracles were all a sham. It was all smoke and mirrors. They couldn't have cast out demons. They can't be this impressive spiritually. There must be a mistake. Except, Jesus never takes issue with their statement, does he? He doesn't call them liars or scoff at their claim. And given the setting, this is judgment day of all men before the glorious king of kings. It seems highly unlikely that anyone would lie when they stand before the one whose eyes pierce into the very depths of who we are. No, it seems far more likely they were telling the truth. These men not only knew who Jesus was and how to speak about and to him, but they'd accomplished some pretty impressive spiritual feats. And still, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. And our hearts ought to tremble at the very words of Christ here. Please, let this text press against your heart and spirit. Jesus says to these people, Away from me. That means they were not, only, were not allowed into heaven it means they were ushered away into darkness and the awfulness of hell and God's wrath against his enemies. 
There are no more terrifying words from our Lord than those three away from me. And if he speaks these words to these men, what hope have we? That's the question we need to wrestle with. Let's be honest, though. We don't want to wrestle with this question, do we? We like to assume that we're headed for eternity. We like to believe that Jesus will welcome us into his presence. Whenever a loved one passes away, we invariably console each other with assurances that they are now in heaven. But how do we know? How can we be sure? If you attend funerals, you will hear basically what you hear in our text. You hear people saying, Mom's in heaven because she prophesied. She cast out demons. She performed miracles. Okay, you might not hear it exactly like that, but it's basically the same thing. Mum was this remarkable human being who may not have made a mistake ever and who was definitely in heaven because she was a committed and passionate Christian who did lots of good things. The words are different, but the meaning is the same. We base our confidence on our behavior, on good works, on self. Isn't that what these men in our text were doing? Jesus has already excluded them from his kingdom, and now they argue their case. They should be welcomed because they are the ones who accomplish great things. They were accomplished Christians. They gave to the Christian school. They served on council. They went to church faithfully their whole life. They led Bible studies. Whatever the proof, it comes down to the same thing. Look at what they did. What else do you want to know? What else is there? This is what it means to be a Christian, right? It means to do great things for the Lord. So how can Jesus honestly exclude these men from his kingdom? They did great things. And if they are excluded, what of us who aren't nearly so impressive? What assurance of our eternity can any of us, lesser Christians, know? If our accomplishments matter, have we accomplished enough? Make no mistake, judging ourselves on the basis of our accomplishments is the most natural thing, but it's a recipe for disaster. We all do this, don't we? When asked to demonstrate my place within the family of faith, when asked to prove my worth as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a Christian, what's my go-to defense? It's not, is it not, look what I've done? Or think about it this way. Think of those times we are criticized or challenged or questions about, questioned about our spirituality. What's our go-to defense? Hopefully such encouragement is received gratefully and if necessary produces repentance. But usually it produces one of two less than ideal responses. Either we offer some variation of an nobody's perfect and the church is full of hypocrites anyway and who are you to judge me? Or we say, but here's what I've done. Here's my medals and my trophies for my spiritual life. Here's my badges and my credentials. Here's my resume. 
We list our behaviors, our activities, our outward expressions of piety as though somehow that's proof positive of being alive in Christ. I do it. You do it. And the men of our text did it. And it's pointless, worthless, and devoid of meaning. Away from me, you evildoers. It seems to me there are two ways to understand Jesus' use of that word, evildoers. On the one hand, he may be exposing the hypocrisy of these men who stand before him. That is, they, they may well have been remarkable Christians on Sunday, but the rest of the week, they're drinking, they're getting high, they're sleeping around, they're cheating their employer, they're failing to lead their homes or submit to the authority in their lives. Whatever the area of life you want to consider, it may well be that Jesus is exposing these men for the hypocrites that they are. They do religious stuff, but they do just as much, if not more, wicked stuff. And none of their piety covers their impiety. It's like spraying perfume on a, mile of, a pile of manure. Not, the, not all that effective. But it may well be that Jesus is speaking in a more pressing way. Think about how, how these men, how we so often try to justify ourselves. Our argument is basically, that's not me because of all the good things I do. For every mistake we make, we bring up five or six good things we've done that outweigh the bad things we've done. Isn't that how we speak? Then they say, I think I've done more good than bad. And that's often how we think. And what if then Jesus is cutting through all their self-congratulatory back-patting for their good deeds? And what if Jesus is say, saying, don't you see it? For all your good deeds, you're still evildoers. Think of it this way. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. And what if Jesus is simply saying, I know the truth of who you are, even if you don't? That's far more, a far more devastating revelation, of course. If Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy, then there's a simple solution. Stop being a hypocrite. Do only good things. That would fix the problem, right? Isn't that what we think so often? I promise, promise, promise I won't do it again. If I just try harder, I'll do better. I can quit any time. But what if the problem isn't what we do or what we don't do? What if the problem is who we are? Isn't that what Jesus teaches us in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? You remember that one, right? The Pharisee is boastful and proud in his prayer to God. But the tax collector doesn't even lift his eyes toward heaven. He just cries out, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector doesn't focus on himself and whatever good he's accomplished. He focuses on the Lord and his righteousness. And he knows deep in his heart 
He knows that he cannot stand before this righteous God. The only hope he has is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. And that's where he finds his comfort and confidence. Not in himself, but in his Lord. And there's such a great comfort in this approach to our God. Our God is gracious, loving, and kind. He is the one who sent his son to die. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who blesses and who lifts us up. Our God delivers all who trust in him, but our God doesn't deliver those who trust in themselves. That's what these men in our text did. And truth be told, that's what we do far too often. In our excuses for sin, in our justifications, in our listings of our piety, in our pointing to outward activities as proof of our worth, we do the same thing. And people of God, it is no basis for our life. To all such, Jesus says, Away from me, you evildoers. And yet, therein lies the great irony. For those who come before him and beat their breasts and say, Have mercy on me, Lord, an evildoer. He welcomes us into his presence. Isn't that strange? When we justify ourselves, he rejects us. When we condemn ourselves, he accepts us. Isn't that so backwards? Except it isn't. People who don't grieve over their sin don't need Jesus. It's only those who know their sin, who know their need of a Savior. It makes perfect sense, if you ask me. And it's the only way into eternity. And that's what we need to remember as we stand before the Lord in worship this day. We all rest on our laurels. We all want to be respected for our accomplishments. We all want to be appreciated for what we've done. It's natural, and it's not unreasonable, at least in our relationship with each other. But when it comes to our relationship with God, such an approach is deadly. Doing Christian things, like going to church and being nice to people, doesn't make you a Christian. Behavior does not equal identity. Activity does not equal character. Who we aren't isn't first about what we do. No, what we, should, what we do should be an expression of who we are. We must be Christian. That is, we must unreservedly, we must rest unreservedly in the finished work of Christ. If we are to be saved, we must know Christ and we must be known by him. The only way to be known by Christ is to cry out for mercy. That's the only way into God's eternal presence, which is both a warning and a comfort. To those who are going through the motions, for whom faith is a culture, a way of living, an activity, this passage is a profound warning. 
You're not Christian because you act like a Christian. And you need to hear this word of warning. You need to hear it press against your heart and bite into your pride and self-confidence. You need to let it bring you to your knees. Only then can you know the comfort of being known. Being known by the one who can save you. You may know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? If he does, rest assured, he will welcome you into his eternal rest. So enjoy the comfort of his favor. But if he does not, that is, if you've never come to him and cried out for mercy, if you've never drawn near to him and pleaded for his grace, if you've never said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, then be warned. Salvation does not come to those who do good, but only to those who rest in the saving power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, you call us now to come, but not to come on our own merits. That's so hard for us to do, Lord. We're so used to it. It's the way we, we relate to each other. It's the way we relate to you. We gather our activities and our abilities and our accomplishments. We put them on our chest, Lord, and we wear them as medals to prove our worth. And when we are criticized, when we are condemned, then we ask with great self-righteousness, do you know who I am? And when others say to us, but you sinned, we say, but I am better than that. But we should, should say, I know, and it grieves me, and I need help, but I have a wonderful Savior and a gracious Lord who is working on me patiently and persistently. Help us to be a people who come to Jesus because we need his grace and not because we are worthy but because he is. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.